This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, October 14th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Good morning. As we come into his presence, let us look to his word. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I have read from 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-10, and 17-19. This is the word of God. Thank you for being with us this morning. Before I pray, um, I wanted to briefly suggest or talk about this morning when I arrived and there was a huge race uh, right at our front parking lot, which we knew was going to happen. Uh, We had talked to the organizers and whatnot to see if we could help each other, um, and it didn't work out. But um, it was easy for me this morning to get irritated to get bothered, and to uh, lose perspective. And so I wanted to uh, confess that, but also uh, to kind of remind us of something that's pretty impressive, and that is our church is in a unique position in this city. Um, And my hope is next October 15th, probably is what it will be, that we will be able to bless the city having um, secured this building Um, in a way that um, will really minister to the city at races like this. This won't be the only race. There's a Grinch one coming up in Christmas time where they're going to chase some dude in a green suit around, Um, which I still, as a side note, don't understand races at all. I I can start and I can start by myself. Why would I pay someone money to tell me where to start and then run and then stop and go, thank you, here's my, I don't get it. But for those who race, they do. But my point is this. What an incredible opportunity we have, unlike any church in this city, to minister to this city and bless this city and to remind this city that we love Jesus and because Jesus loves us, we're going to love you. I don't know what that looks like necessarily, but I know that just about every event starts right in front of our church every year. And so we need to really take advantage of that. What an awesome privilege. Um, And so to give us some perspective, I'm going to pray certainly about what we're going to hear, but about that. Um, that God would use our church in a way that um, we can't even see at this point to really minister to those um, believers and non-believers who gather in front of our building regularly throughout the year. Um, So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You. You are worthy to be praised. And that is why we are here. We are not here for ourselves, Lord. We are here to declare Your goodness and Your grace, and Your greatness, and Your generosity towards Your people. Thank You for all that You have done. Thank You for the blessing of breath in our lungs this morning. Thank You for the blessing of the freedom to come and to worship You. Thank You for the blessing of where You have placed us in this city, in this state, in this time of the world that is dark and in need of light. Would you help us, Lord, to honor you, to proclaim your goodness, not just by 
loving you and proclaiming your love, but by loving one another and loving the city around us in such a way that they ask questions, why do you love this way? Would you make us that people, Lord? A people who are motivated not by getting your approval or appeasing your wrath, but as a people who know they have your approval and have been saved from your wrath through Jesus Christ and now want to tell others about that hope in really simple but tangible ways. Would you help us to do that, Lord? And then stir in our hearts this morning. As the Word goes forth, Lord, I pray you move me out of the way by your Spirit. You will speak the words that need to be spoken to whom they need to be spoken to, whether it be words of conviction or comfort, encouragement or instruction, but help the cross of Christ be bigger in our lives. And let that reality change how we behave and how we think and what we do. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to open up to, uh, well, several places. First Timothy is a good start. Um, we are, I am not going to show the text of the uh, verses that I quote um, because I want you to open your Bibles. Um, and the reason for that is because we're in such a technological world now that um, as we look at our phones, and I don't condemn anyone for looking at their phone to look up the Bible. But I will say we look at our phones for a lot more than just the Bible. And as those who are in our care, watching our example, are just watching us go through life, when they look at our phone, when they see us looking at our phone, they don't know what we're looking at. But when they see us looking at our Bibles, they know exactly what we're looking at uh, and thinking about. And so I want to encourage us to know how to navigate our Bibles. And so we're going to be in 1 Timothy and elsewhere. We'll put the references up there uh, and some other things up there, but I'm going to try and not put too many verses up there so that we can open our Bibles. There's Bibles in front of you if you don't have one. Um, if I get really organized, someday I'll put page numbers on where you should turn. But for now, you just have to memorize the books of the Bible. There's not that many of them. All right. Well, we spent the last five weeks going through a series which we're now done with uh, through the first epistle of John, and it was to understand what it means to be saved. And it was to hopefully quell some anxiety, give some assurance or at least some direction, but also was to examine our own hearts, not the hearts of our spouses, not the hearts of our friends, not primarily the hearts of our children or those we know, but our own hearts, a self-examination to test, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, whether we are in the faith. It's a question we don't often ask and we should perhaps examine on occasion. We learn that salvation is much more than just some intellectual ch change of mind, some ascent of facts. It's a radical and spiritual change of heart that is initiated by God. He saves us, and in saving us, He changes us. And as I said last week, primarily He changes our love. He changes uh, specifically who we love and, and what we love and even how we love and we connected love with worship. It changes our love. Now interestingly, the Bible has lots of descriptions or phrases to describe salvation. And one of those phrases is probably familiar to you. It's being born again. It's the phrase that Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again or you can't see the kingdom of God, which sounds really weird, how to become a little baby again. And then Jesus later says in Matthew 18 that unless you change and become like children, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Children, born again, babies. I don't think that Jesus wants us to literally revert back to being children, to being a people in diapers, but I wonder sometimes if we're simply supposed to acknowledge that we're already there. Making a mess of ourselves and more dependent than we'll admit. See, in pride, we believe we are strong. We act as if we can rule ourselves. We even pretend we don't stink on occasion. And we spend our days running away from our Father who only wants to help us. And if you have little children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. In rebellion, you know what we say to God the Father? I don't need you. I can do it myself. If you've ever had little children, grandchildren, been around children, you know the famous phrase eventually comes out, I can do it myself. 
But as new creations, right? As, as those who have been born again, we see God differently. We see Him now as a Father and we do recognize that we are actually His dependents. We are born again as spiritual children and we are all growing up into maturity in Christ. Some slower or faster than others. This is probably why John throughout his epistle, if you look, the most common phrase he has is little children, little children, little children, little children. He's not trying to insult people, but he's speaking to adults about how we should view ourselves. Now, I still have little children and I have big children from 17 to 4. So I have every life stage all at once, right? And many of you are in a similar place. And the littlest of my children, right? And the, the more little they become, you realize how desperately dependent upon me they are for their existence. Right? For everything, right? If I don't provide them food, they starve. If I don't provide them clothing, they freeze. If I don't give them a place to sleep, they will suffer. If I don't encourage my young boys in their manhood, give them a smile, a high five, or my well done, they may end up somewhat insecure. If I don't love my daughters and actively cuddle them and embrace them and speak about their beauty, they will seek validation elsewhere. And so they know, I believe, I hope that I love them. They, they see that I love them. They, they know I'm present with them. And I know that my kids love me. Like my littlest kids, I love them. My four-year-old daughter, I still walk in every day after work or just been gone for a while and it's daddy, right? Sprinting to me. Daddy! Not so much for my 17-year-old. I don't remember the last time he said that. It'd be a little awkward if he did, but I would embrace him if he did. But it's not difficult, right? My little daughter comes in at night. She's scared. She wants to be with mom and dad. Get in the bed. Why? Because there'll be a day when she won't want to do that. And it would be weird if she did, but right now I'm going to take advantage of every minute. So she knows I love her. I know she loves me and my youngest. It's so clear. And they begin to love the things you love. Right? My seven-year-old son is very cute and he loves the things dad loves. I love cheese. I love peanut butter. I love Star Wars. I like beards. And what is Hudson? I'm going to eat cheese. I'm going to eat peanut butter. I love Star Wars. And when I'm a man, I'm going to have a beard, right? And like, just loves the things that I am. And loves. It's not like I had to convince him, you know, you should probably have a beard. Like, it's just, he loves whatever I do. I'm going to drive a truck one day. Like, cool. Like, that's awesome. And similarly, though, we might forget over time, when we're saved, we love the Father that way. Because we know His love and we love Him and we begin to love the things that He loves. And the Bible says nothing can separate you from that love, though we at times separate ourselves perhaps. But then the Bible describes God as a jealous God. You're like, well, that sounds kind of creepy. But what it means is that He wants nothing, nothing else to satisfy us like His love. Did you know that there are things competing for God's place in your life? For God's firstness? Maybe it's better said that there are many things competing for God's love in your life. And this is more than just affection, right? There are things competing for our devotion, for God's firstness, for God's worship in our lives. Many false gospels offering false saviors and false promises. So it makes sense that we should probably talk about those things that compete for our love. And the most powerful, I believe, is money, riches, possessions. Now, money is one of the most controversial topics to talk about in church. More than almost anything else, I could talk about some of the most grievous sins in Scripture 
We could have sermons about homosexuality and things of that nature, but when you talk about money, suddenly people get uncomfortable because it's touching real life. Some of those other things maybe not don't touch you. Money seems to touch everybody, and it touches us in very meaningful ways. There are some pastors that probably talk about money too much, and there are others that talk about it too little. According to our elders and our staff and several members, I fall in the latter category. I don't talk about it enough. There's also a contingent of members who don't feel that way. I have sat with people over the last 12 years, and they have literally said to me, tell me everything about spiritual things, but leave my money alone. You go, oh, okay. Now, the Apostle Paul seemed to believe that our disposition towards riches and possessions, even when I say riches, everyone typically is like, well, I'm not rich. Yeah, I'm glad you're talking to the rich people in here, right? But the Apostle Paul said that like our disposition towards money and possessions provide a very unique window into our spiritual relationship with God. Where we read out of 1 Timothy chapter 6, I'll read again. Writing to a young pastor in a very wealthy city, Paul writes this, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. In a well-known verse, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, what a strong word, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then skip ahead to verse 17 of chapter 6 in 1 Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Paul seems to warn Timothy that money is pretty dangerous. Paul doesn't say money itself is evil, intrinsically bad, but that the love, the craving for money and riches is the root of all kinds of evils. And again, many of us are blind to our own blindness. Specifically, he warns us though against pride in possessions and hope, misplaced hope in wealth. See, money and possessions are dangerous because having stuff makes us feel good. And having stuff can actually be connected with our self worth. And as you get older, it may not manifest itself the same way, but I see it often in like my junior high aged kids as they go to school and they see kids with certain name brands of stuff and things they want. Like having stuff, there's a certain status symbol attached to that, a certain lifestyle, certain brand name that we, well, basically what we have and what we don't have begins to define our significance. We feel superior or inferior depending on how we view it. Paul also states that money is dangerous because we can put a hope in it that's not supposed to be there. It can get a false sense of security. Like to place your final and, and most important hope in money is to find certainty in something that's totally uncertain. See 2008. In our nation's history, and it's not the first time that's happened, right? It became real quick understanding for everybody that riches didn't provide any certainty because it could be gone in a day. People lost their jobs. People lost their homes. 
To place your hope in that is totally uncertain. That's the money gospel. There are many gospels out there, but the money gospel is one that is, I think, very subtle. And every false gospel has a false hell. And the money gospel, hell, is poverty. It's a less than lifestyle. It's not having something that you believe you need. And the Savior from this hell is money. You think about it. Maybe not for yourself, but for somebody else. How many people believe that most of their problems would be solved with more money? I had just a little more money. I could do this. A little more money that I wouldn't have to suffer this way. It's not even the, the worst kind of things. Like if I had more money, I could buy this amazing mansion. That's how we think of it. Like it's got to be that. Well, I don't want a mansion, so that's not me. But many of us believe that if we had a little more, I would be able to be generous. A little more, I'd be able to be comfortable. A little more, I wouldn't have to work so hard. So clearly though, we have to see that our disposition towards money is a spiritual matter. The guy that says, well, hey, tell me about spiritual things, but don't touch my money. Well, money is a spiritual thing. And Paul's not alone in teaching about the danger of money. Did you know that he simply followed the example of Jesus himself? Who reminded us how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And yet, how many people in our world are striving to be rich men? Like if, if Jesus said, look, you know how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God and how many people are striving to get wealthier? That should repel us. Whoa, I want to be careful of wealth. I want to be careful of riches. If Jesus says, like, that makes it hard to trust you, Jesus. That makes it hard to, to enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't really want, how can I give more of it away? But we don't think of it that way. You know, Jesus talked about money a lot. 16 of His 38 parables He taught were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one out of ten verses, 288 in all, deal directly with the subject of money. The Bible offers, so outside of the Gospels, it offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Jesus talked about money more than He talked about heaven, more than He talked about hell, more than He talked about sexuality, more than He talked about love. If nothing else, He wasn't afraid to talk about money because I think that He understood that it was deeply connected with our loves. This is why He said in Matthew 6, Verse 19, probably familiar to you. You've heard it before. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then, a couple of verses later in verse 24, he says, about money and nothing else, no one can serve two masters. For either he's going to hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Think of all the different masters he could have named. He talks about money. Our hearts follow our money, and money, though an amazing gift, is a horrible master, a horrible God. So according to Jesus at least, what we do with our money and possessions matters and we should at least ask those questions and yet pastors are either too afraid to talk about money or not afraid enough. And there are two ditches on the road paved with money. There's avoidance and then there's abuse. Avoidance is obvious, right? And Honestly, I think I personally tend to fall there. As I said in first service, I need to ask your forgiveness for that. 
Because that's not Christ-like shepherding. It's interesting. Um, I, people are visiting, you're like, really? The one day I visit, and you're going to talk about money? If you ask people, you'll find out that I don't. Aaron Perez held up a big zero like this on first service. Um, and that's to my shame. And the reason for that is a little bit of fear. Because there's been so much abuse of money by pastors and by Christians and a misunderstanding of it. I think my personal fear is that oh, it's going to be perceived as abuse. It's going to be perceived as a perversion of the gospel that I love. Because the prosperity gospel is alive and well today. And if you've never heard the prosperity gospel, you could Google it and find out what it is. But it is an evil perversion of the message of Christ. And it teaches basically this, that God rewards faith, especially hefty giving faith, with even more financial blessing and even physical blessing. It's a heresy. It's not just like, oh, that's bad teaching. No, it's a heresy from hell. And it's a heresy because what it teaches is that Jesus' atonement extends to our material poverty. He didn't just want us to have life. He wanted us to have actually earthly riches. And if we're not having earthly riches as Christians, somehow we have misunderstood the cross. It's a heresy that actually teaches the primary reason Christians should give to God is to get from God. That's heresy. It's a heresy that teaches your faith is this self-generated power that leads to prosperity. It's the heresy that treats God the Father like some kind of sugar daddy or name it, claim it, vending machine that as long as you put in the right coins, you get out what you want. As one pastor said, it's a false gospel because at the bottom of the prosperity gospel is the faulty view of a relationship between God and man. Simply put, if the prosperity gospel is true, grace is obsolete. You know, undeserved favor. Grace is obsolete. God is irrelevant. And man is the measure of all things. But, even when pastors are courageous, I'm going to talk about money. Just talk about it in bad ways. In terms of the motivation, why we should give. Why anyone should give. Why should we be generous? And as they're trying to encourage, they do it wrongly. Not to suggest I'm going to do it perfectly, but there are many who call the church to dutiful obedience. There's nothing wrong with calling people to obedience, but when you start talking primarily in terms of generosity, Christians ought to do this, ought to give, you are in real danger of becoming either prideful or despairing if you do or you do not and basically creating some kind of legalistic system where you begin to think you are righteous because you give or unrighteous if you don't. But then there's also, oh, we're not going to do that. We'll call people to give to big vision. That's why we, people should give. To something bigger than themselves, like a building or, or some kind of big program. Like, hey, that's how people should get stirred. But what, problem, what happens when you don't have a big building? Or some program? or some tangible thing that's compelling to our flesh. The problem with both of those approaches is this. They're man-centered. They're centered on, hey, it's about what you do and about what you want. I think the only kind of approach to teach on generosity is to teach generosity that's driven by the character of God and the cross of Christ. When we talk about why we're generous, we're talking about who God is and what He has done first. Not what we want to see done and not even what we should do, but what He has done. So let's talk about God, right? First and foremost, let's talk about how generous God is. And so as Paul talked to the Corinthians, he said something, him speaking spiritually because they were very spiritually puffed up about themselves. But let's think of it materially. And this is the question he asked them. What do you have that you haven't received? So we ask ourselves, like, what do I have that I haven't received? 
Did you know that you're a creature? A new creation, but still a creature, dependent and accountable? Many of us will say, but I've worked hard for what I have. When other people were unwise with their money, I was wise. When others wanted to play, I worked hard. This leads to the delusion that what we have is our own from our own efforts and the result of our own hard work. A lot of owns in there. Me, 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 me. I've always enjoyed what God said to Moses as he questioned his own capacities to do things. In Exodus 4, he said, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is not I the Lord? So we talk about things like, well, what about my education? My, I, I, I worked hard on my education. Who gave you the mind? Who gave you the ability to learn? Who gave you the capacity to grow? Who gave you the desire to understand that? I'm just good with numbers. Why? Did you decide to be one day? Well, what about my hard work, right? I, I worked hard. I put my hours in. Well, who gave you the muscles to do that? Your fingers, your toes, your abilities to work and lift, your energy. Who gave you that? What about my creativity? I'm just a very creative person. Others aren't creative, and so I find solutions. Who gave you that creativity? Who gave you the eye for photography, the mind to see visually, the ability to dance, to play instruments, whatever the creative thinking you have? Who gave you that? But what about my... Let me just state it this way. God has given you every ability, every capacity, and every opportunity that has produced every kind of prosperity in your life. And anything you have to give anyone is a gift from God who gave it to you. That's where it starts. To start anywhere else is to start with ourselves. We don't start with ourselves. We start with God. So the question that this kind of begins to beg is not whether or not you're going to give back to God, but whether you're going to rob God of what is rightfully His. Robbery? Really? We're going to go to robbery? This is what God does. In Malachi, which is the end of the Old Testament, chapter 3, this is a verse that if you turn on um, some of the uh, TV evangelists, they'll drop all the time. That's why I hesitate to even bring this verse up because um, they abuse it horribly. But consider what God is saying to His people through the prophet Malachi. So this is God kind of almost having a rhetorical conversation with Himself. Asking questions and kind of giving them words like, you ask this, and He says this, beginning in verse 7, Return to Me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So He wants relationship. But his him talking. But you say, so as people say, well, how are we going to return? What do you mean by return? Verse 8, God speaking. Will man rob God? He says, yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how have he robbed you in your tithes and contributions? Now, I think it's noteworthy in that passage. If nothing else, there's a lot. I preached on this. You can download the sermon. But it's noteworthy that God is the one who makes a connection between His relationship to us and our relationship to our stuff. And says that you can't separate those things. And he calls it robbery. Essentially, I, I've tried to think of an image of what it's like. And I may have heard this and picked it up from someone else. I don't know, but this has been helpful. Essentially, it's like this. Consider yourself a person who's in great debt. Huge debt, thousands and thousands and thousands in debt with no capacity to pay back yourself. You are struggling. You are suffering. You're losing your home. You're losing your car. You're losing everything because you have this huge debt. And a friend comes. He says, I'm going to give you a million dollars freely. You don't need to pay me back. It's my gift to you to pay your debt, and to enjoy my blessing. That's hard to imagine that happening. Many would be like, that would solve so many problems, right? But then perhaps that friend says, the only thing I ask you is this. 
I want you to give me $100,000 back of the one million that I just gave you. And yet we struggle with that. Right? We struggle with that because we're more depressed about our lack of prosperity than we are impressed with God's generosity. We focus on the fact that I have to give up $100,000 and we don't realize you were just given a million. And many of you keen listeners are listening like, oh, there it is. I heard it in the illustration. I heard it in the verse. The tithe. That's what we're going to the tithe. We're going to the tithe. I can see where he's going. It's like a curse word in the church. I'm certain you've probably heard that word before. You may not understand what it is. It means tenth. The concept of the tithe is in the Old Testament. and The tithe was a requirement of the law in which all Israelites did give 10% of everything they earned, the crops they had, the animals that they raised, in order to um, support the ministry of the temple. And the tithe paid for the day-to-day kind of operations of what amounted to a theocracy. And God ruled, and the priests served, and they ministered to the people of God. And if you, which you probably won't do this because you're not nerdy like me, but if you went through and you started adding up all the contributions and offerings that the typical Israelite participated in, you have the basic tithes, the first fruit offerings, the special almsgiving, the prescribed sacrifices, especially vowed offerings, the dedicated offerings, the free will offerings, the other sacrifices, thanksgiving offerings, and the half shekel temple tax, you begin to realize that conservatively, you could estimate that the average Israelite gave about 33% of their income. And many have reminded me of that technicality. Like, well, technically, in Christ, the tithe no longer applies. And I say, yes, this is true. We are saved by grace and the law has been fulfilled in Christ. Yet I've found that the few people who challenge some standard of giving like the tithe are usually working really hard to find ways to be more generous to themselves and excuse their greed. It doesn't typically lead to a very big Bible study about the tithe. It's more of an excuse. Now I say that because that happens on occasion, but we have very, very sacrificial giving in our church. I see all kinds of generosity outside our church through our people. This isn't speaking to everyone necessarily the same way. But even a casual reading of the New Testament and knowing what the church does, we see that the churches were supported by the believers in them, and the young churches even gave their support to support other churches. We've done that same thing at different times in our history. They've even gone so far as to sell plots of land, and they've given proceeds to the church. I mean, there's all kinds of giving that's going on. And they are not commanded to legalistically give 10% of their income, but it's certainly been a helpful standard as the young church full of mainly Jews came into being. We certainly have to be careful about legalism in that regard. But I would ask you to maybe consider this. Did you know that if every Christian in every church tithed to their church, and every church tithed to bless the community, that all the issues related to poverty and money would be resolved and there would be leftovers? And granted, many of the churches don't give to the community to bless the world, to encourage the gospel to go forth through tangible means, and many do not give to the church to even make that possible. But if we were generous with at least 10% of our income, most, if not all, the problems related to money, at least, would be resolved. Granted, money doesn't solve every problem. But truly, God is generous and we are actually pretty generous. And what I mean by that is that everyone is generous and tithed somewhere. Something or someone gets your best. Something or someone gives your most and your first. And I've always found it interesting that we don't talk about that with one another. 
Guys will get together and talk about pornography and, and the you know, woes of sexual sin and brokenness, but we don't open up our checkbooks. We confess all kinds of dark sin and speak of difficult things, but how often do we have conversations about money and how we spend it with one another? I don't remember ever coming to a small group and they say, hey guys, let's talk about our greed. I think I might be greedy. Can I, can I talk to you about how I spend my money? And you and allow you to speak into my life and just kind of be a sounding board to bring light on maybe something that I don't see? Oh, let's talk about all kinds of spiritual matters. Let's not talk about money. That's how we function. But the Bible says in Proverbs 3, 9-10, we are to honor the Lord. We are to honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all you produce. And then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. I, I, it's important to say that God doesn't need our money and that's not why He encourages us and expects us to give. He wants our hearts. And our hearts follow our money. See, God prescribed this, this rule, if you will, Encourage this standard because He wanted us to place Him first in our lives. I would argue that anyone that gathers with the church on a Sunday for those couple hours have said God's first in this moment. But as we extend that to other parts of our lives, our time and our energy and our treasure and, and everything else, like, is He still first? Did you know that God doesn't want your leftovers? He doesn't want your second best. He wants us to make Him first by giving Him our best. And that's what the first fruit offering is so unique as, a, as an incredible picture. Because a first fruit offering, if you think about them bringing the best and the first of their fruitfulness to God, it is in many ways a declaration of thankfulness. I acknowledge that this is from you. I acknowledge that I'm dependent upon you, that everything I have is a gift, and I'm giving back to you what you have given to me. But it's also a declaration that I trust you, God. Because I give this, and it's hard to give. It's going to make things uncomfortable for me. But I'm trusting that you promise to provide. I heard one pastor say it well. He said, the first fruit offering is the only kind of offering that actually requires faith. Because anyone can give from their leftovers. Which most of us do with our time, with our energy, with our treasure. Like, oh, well, I got a little bit left over. Here you go, Jesus. And I don't think we are flippant like that, but I don't think we're on the other side of that where we're very intentional. We're saying, I'm going to I'm going to give. I'm going to be generous with this. And I know, I don't know how this is all going to work out over here, but I'm going to trust Him. I'm actually going to believe His promises. God is generous, and we are also generous, at least to someone or something. And God wants us to be generous to Him first. And we go, how does that happen? Well, it can't happen by me just going, come on, give! Let's go! Amen! Pray! It can't happen by like, okay, here's the new thing to give to, guys. It has to be a place to generate generosity in us that extends beyond moments. You know, God had a lot to say about money in the Old Testament. And there's tons of verses that you can turn to. It's very practical. There's very clear prescriptions and instructions about what we're supposed to do with our money. But you get to Hebrews. It's interesting. The first verse of Hebrews says something really crazy. It says, the first two verses of the book of Hebrews, which is in the back half of your Bible, said, long ago, and many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he's speaking about the Old Testament. God spoke through Malachi. God spoke through David and Moses. All these guys, right? He said, but in these last days, we're in the last days, between Jesus' first coming and second coming, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. 
So what that tells us is this. The cross of Christ. The cross of Christ declares everything we need to know about God's view of money. About God's view of everything. But we can apply it to money. What do you mean? Well, in Christ, we see that God put us first in His death. That we might put Him first in our life. The cross shows us that God said, I'm going to put you first and my son's going to die. That's what's going on there. And yet we struggle to put him first in our lives, in our checkbooks. Which is a very old sentence. You even have a checkbook anymore. Christians should be by nature the most generous of people in every way because Christians are the ones who declare and confess they know what true generosity is because they've experienced it. But I'm not sure generosity is the thing that would characterize most Christians if non-Christians were asked. Certainly some, but not most. Paul reminds us, interestingly, about the grace of Jesus. So the grace, right? We say, what's, what's grace? The unmerited, unearned love of Jesus. Okay, so Paul says this grace of Jesus, the grace of His life and the grace of His death and the grace of His resurrection, do you know that he reminds us about the grace using the language of money? If I were to ask you, tell me about the grace of Jesus, I don't think you would turn to 2 Corinthians 8-9. But look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know about this. You know about grace. You know about His incredible generosity and love. That though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Even in describing the grace of Christ, Paul uses the language of money and possessions. So he's pretty clear about what man is apart from Jesus. We're poor. We're impoverished. And that's kind of where it begins in terms of becoming generous. Until you see man, you, us, for who we are apart from Christ. That we are rebels. That we are disobedient children of wrath. Broken and dirty. Hostile enemies. Impoverished undeserving of God's love, if you don't see that, it makes sense that you would hold on to your money with a closed hand and say, mine. But when you begin to see who you truly are in your poverty and what God has done for you in Christ, it changes. So we don't give primarily because we're trying to earn God's favor or because we're trying to appease His wrath. We gave because God has loved us, and when we had nothing to give Him, Christ died for us. Five simple words. We give because Jesus gave. That's why we give. We give because Jesus gave. And you go, how did Jesus give? Let me just give you these five words. They're big words, but you need to remember them. Because when we talk about Jesus giving, you're like, yeah, that's right, Jesus gave. Well, He gave very specific ways. He gave volitionally. Volition, that's a big word, I know. Volitionally, I'll go through them all. Intentionally, proportionately, sacrificially, and joyfully. Start with the first one, volitionally. What does that mean? He gave willingly. No one compelled Jesus. No one, come on, Jesus, get on the cross. He willingly carried His cross. He willingly died for our sin. The Father didn't have to convince Him. It was His desire. And the last thing I want to do is go, alright, give! And if you don't give, we're coming down on you. That's not Christ-like giving. It can't be compulsory. It has to be voluntary. 
And that's why we don't pass the plate. You'll never see a plate passed. Why? Consider what that would feel like as a non-believer. Or a believer for that matter. Statistically, they say, you know what? Your giving will go up 20% if you pass a bucket or a plate or a velvety baggy thing, right? And I go, no way. Why? Because you're to bring your offering. And I've had the experience sitting next to my non-believing friend in a different church where you have that weird velvet bag, right? And you go over and the person's like, I didn't bring my checkbook. And they feel horrible. And you're like, oh, you don't understand. No, no, that's not what I want you to know. Jesus also gave intentionally, right? He gave according to a plan before the foundation of the world. He planned to give. He planned it out. It was intentional. It wasn't just a second thought. It wasn't just an afterthought. We put more time planning vacations, planning our education, planning the paths for our children than we do about our giving and generosity. And because we don't plan, People end up suffering and we lose out on a blessing we have blessing somebody. Yes, I believe there's an important mandate and responsibility to give to the church and give to the world, but what about those moments when things just come up and this person needs something, but because you didn't plan, there's no way for you to be generous. Intentionality. Jesus planned it way in advance. And He gave proportionally. What does that mean? Well, Jesus owned everything and He gave all He had. I don't know what people give in this church. I try to stay away from it, though many of the finance team wants to tell me I need to know certain things. Like, I don't want it. I don't want to think about it. don't like it. Even as different things have come in for the building, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. God's stirring or not, it's all I need to know. But on occasion... I have known, and what surprised me over 12 years is when I see the girl who works at Subway, who over the year gives more than the engineer from NASA. Pretty sure they're not making the same amount. And I'm blown away by the faithfulness of this girl at Subway and the faithlessness of the person working for NASA. Now I'm making those up, but I'm not making up that scenario because that's real. That's not proportional giving. God has blessed many of us. Blessed us certainly by just being in the United States. Blessed us by being in Washington State. And just blessed us individually. And we always are thinking like, well, I just don't have, I'm not, I'm not rich. I can't get. I'm always struck by the widow's mite story, right? Where she has a couple little coins and all these rich guys standing around her and they're like, whatever. And Jesus says, that little woman gave more than you could possibly imagine because of the faith which she gave me. And that's where Jesus also gave sacrificially. We don't like this one. When we say that we're expected to give sacrificially, we like, mm, what does that mean? It means it hurts. Think about this. We'll move on. Jesus didn't tithe His blood. He didn't tithe his blood. I'll give you a little bit. He sacrificed in such a way it hurt. And we're so fearful of inconveniencing and making our lives uncomfortable that we don't give sacrificially. And I would argue that giving sacrificially and giving faithfully go together. I'm afraid if I make this sacrifice, this will happen. And lastly, he gave joyfully. In Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus saw the joy past the cross. And He gave His life, seeing the redemption of man, seeing the fulfillment of God's mission, seeing the growth of God's kingdom. And that's how we need to look at it, because this life is not all there is. And I doubt when we get to heaven, God's going to say, you know what? wish you would have saved a little bit for yourself. put that last quote up there. I really believe this. It's a lot of words, but it puts all these together. That when our giving is volitional, willingly, voluntary, it will be intentional because we're thinking about it. And when it's an intentional, it will be proportional. And when it's proportional, only then will it actually be sacrificial. 
and hard to believe, when it's sacrificial, it will be joyful. It will be joyful. There's nothing more joyful than being able to give to somebody generously who you know cannot give to you. And seeing them blessed and seeing them grateful, not to you, but to God. You can't, because they can't explain, like, why, why would you do this? Because Jesus gave to me. That's why. So, as we close, yes, we have a building. And I do pray that God stirs in the hearts of our people. And He already has over many months and years and even in the last month or so. I do pray He stirs your heart and you want to give to a kingdom investment where we can put roots down and we can build an embassy here for the Lord Jesus and minister to the city in amazing ways. But I will say this, true generosity, gospel generosity is not going to be measured by some one-time gift. It's measured by and revealed in your life. I don't just mean this generosity, this one time. I'm talking about a total attitude of generosity with all that you have. And so if you're not a Christian, um, I'm sorry, not sorry, that this is the first sermon you've heard. Um, it's difficult for me to talk about this, and it shouldn't be, because I know how much it touches everyone. But if you're not a Christian, please, as we come forward this morning, don't give. God isn't interested in your money and neither are we. You should be receiving today. You should be indulging and feasting on the generosity of God who says, look, I have a gift of eternal life for you today. Receive it through faith and enjoy the riches of the inheritance of my kingdom. Guaranteed and secured for you. So if you're not a Christian, don't give, but come and talk with me, please. I can talk about just how generous Jesus is, how much He loves you, how much He generously forgives you, and how much He wants to bless you. But if you are a Christian, yes, God is very clear. He does call us and command us to give. Young or old, it doesn't matter how old you are. Member or not, if you're a Christian, you're called to give. To give back to Him what He's given to you. And if you refuse, it's possible you're putting hope in your riches because you don't want to let it go. But you should strive, as Paul says, to not be rich, but to be rich in good works and to be generous with your time and your treasure as an act of worship. Not to try and impress God. You're giving back to Him what's His. But in response to the Gospel. And so if you're a Christian, you know, you should know, Please know, God owns everything. He owns it all. It's all His. You're just a manager of His stuff. And the only steward that the manager in Jesus' parable to the talents, the only steward that was rebuked and condemned was the one who was too afraid to do anything with God's money. Don't be afraid. Be radically generous and see what God does. And if you are a Christian, know that like many things, what we do in this life, and specifically what we do with our money, it does reveal something to you about your relationship to God. I don't know what you're giving. I don't really care. I care about your soul. And it does say something about your soul and your relationship to God. Your heart follows your money, and if you're only giving to yourself or your family or whatever things that you believe are more important than God, that clearly shows where your heart's focused. Yourself. But I'll end with this. Don't believe the gospel of money. But do preach the gospel with your money. What do I mean by that? My hope is that we're such a generous people that people have to go, why are you still stinking generous? That's weird. People don't do that. And here's the response. Jesus. Because Jesus, although richer than any king that ever lived, loved us so much He gave it all up. And He came off His throne, down to earth, and He lived a sinless life of poverty. 
And he willingly went to the cross like a condemned criminal and sacrificed himself to pay the debt that I could not afford. And his resurrection, that's God's receipt to say, paid in full. And when we admit that we need that, that we are poor, and when we place our trust in Jesus, He gives the richness of His righteousness to us that we might be freed from the bankrupt hearts that we have. And then with our hearts filled up with Him, as we wait for an eternal inheritance beyond measure, the Bible says, we're generous. And we're ready to share because we know this is not all there is. And we do that so that, as Paul says, we might take hold of what is truly life. Because you know what the world says? Life is found with saying mine. Life is found with having more. That's not where true life is. Jesus says true life is surrendering to Him. He gave up His life for you Will you give up your lifestyle for Him? For many of us, we like to sound heroic. I would die for you, Jesus. Peter sounded like that. Some of us, the hardest thing for us to do is to give up our lifestyle. That's what God is calling to. To a faith that actually has tangible, touch the ground meaning. I'm going to pray for us. And ask that God will help us to be generous as he's been generous to us. Let's pray.